Hi, everybody. Welcome to Unrestricted, the podcast that interviews noted public figures that have now returned to a more private life. My name is Steve Savitsky, president of B'nai Tzion Foundation, former president and chairman of many Jewish organizations. The people you're about to meet have great wisdom and experience. They were all leaders in the Jewish world and have much to share, unrestricted, with our listening audience. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Unrestricted. And today, uh, I really have a great honor and, and a great privilege of talking to somebody who I've read about, who I've heard about, but never actually met. I don't know why that happened. It's, it's pretty strange. sounds pretty strange to me all those years, but I'm talking about Barry Schrage. Barry, uh, good morning. How are you? Good morning. It's my honor to be here. I've, I've taken a look at the list of your guests. I'm uh... Um, small potatoes here, but uh, honored to be here and to talk. You're big potatoes, okay? So anyway, yeah, so no. for those in the listening audience, you should know that Barry Schrag was the former president of the combined Jewish philanthropies of the greater Boston area. We'll talk about that in a moment for over 30 years. Also a professor of practice in the in Brandeis University and the Hornstein program. We want to talk about that. And uh, how does a, a New York boy wind up in Boston? Oh, it's, actually, it's like it's like the rest of my life. I would have to say it's part of the many incredible blessings that God uh, put in my path. So they offered me a job, you know. So I, so I, I came. I, I was in Cleveland for nine years working for the Federation there. Uh, before that, I worked for JCCs and for the JCC Association. In New York, I was born in New York and uh, did some work there as well. But I wanted to be able to have an impact on a community, and it was an excellent fit with Boston. So uh, we're here. But you never got the accent. So you're still you're still pretty good. I I think I lost every accent while I was in Cleveland because they were they were really tough on accent in Cleveland. You either talk like a Midwesterner or you're you have no role whatsoever. I mean, in, in Boston, you just have to be careful not to have a New York accent because they suspect you of being a Yankees fan and then you're in desperate trouble. That could be, that could be very dangerous, right? Very. Yeah. Okay. I got it. So let's talk, first of all, as far as being president of the combined Jewish philanthropies, now what does that mean? It means everything, everything that has to Jewish, Jewish life is combined into one Organization. No, 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 no. no it, it's it's like a it is a federation. It is Boston's Jewish Federation. Yeah. So that means that we have uh, a lot to do with a number of agencies in the Boston area, a number of key agencies, and also uh, take care of the uh, responsibility with regard to Israel and overseas funding, the JDC funding, the Jewish Agency funding, a variety of other of other uh, charities and organizations, and so on. But we also, in theory, a federation can have should have not just the ability to fund, but also the ability to influence, to influence opinion, to lead opinion, to bring together a, a variety of uh, points of view in order to be able to, to create a kind of a common vision for a community. Right. And so, but it's, it was rather large. I read about it. It's quite a, quite a big budget, isn't it? Yeah, we've grown. We've grown over the years. We distribute a bunch of money. We are part of an endowment that's probably over a billion dollars. So how how is life in the Boston general Boston area? Is it growing? Uh, what, what's it like? I haven't. I've. I used to go there a lot. I haven't been there in a while. So yeah, it's growing. I mean, it's uh, in a way, it's a kind of a transient Jewish community because people are coming in, they're going to school, they're going out, 
But there's a huge technology community here, biotech, uh, high tech, hospitals. It's, uh, you know, when I was here in graduate school back in 1968, it was kind of a sleepy town with problems. And, you know, there were racial problems, all kinds of things going on here. But it's the combination of the universities and the hospitals that just triggered a real, uh, a tremendous renaissance of creativity. And uh, Jewish life was definitely a part of that. And, um, you know, I think we have uh, maybe 225,000 people, maybe a little more in the uh, uh, overall greater Boston area that's part of the Federation. Hmm. That's really nice. So I want to ask you a question about Brandeis University. So, I mean, I know about it. Obviously, I've read about it. I think many people do. So what's the Jewish connection? Is it, is it in other words, let's say if I said I was going to Columbia University of Pennsylvania or Harvard, what's the difference between Brandeis and any of those schools? Well, first of all, I mean, it was founded in a very special way. It was founded, you know, back in the late 40s, uh, early 50s by people who said, you know, we've been a a guest uh, at other people's institutions. Bear in mind, so many of America's great institutions are the product of religious movements, uh, either the Catholic Church or various Protestant denominations. And I think those folks wanted uh, the Jewish community to be, as they said, a, a host rather than a guest. Uh, and they created this institution. But even more importantly, I think, the special part about Brandeis University really is, first of all, it, look, it's a great university with great departments in every area. It has excellence in teaching and in learning, and it's the right size for many people. It's just great in all those, in all those ways. But in addition, uh, Jewishly, uh, I'm working at the Hornstein program, which has trained a very large part of the Jewish uh, professional uh, leadership of the American Jewish community. That's what the Hornstein program does, trains Jewish communal leadership. And it has the Cohen Center for Modern Jewish Studies. We have more data on the American Jewish community uh, than certainly than any university with a mission for using that data in order to help guide the American Jewish community to make the right choices. When I was at CJP, um, I, I had no formal relationship, but I was constantly in touch with the Cohen Center in order to take a look at what the current data was. What does the data mean? They have all the birthright data starting at the beginning of birthright, which means that the folks at the Cohen Center know more about the next generation of American Jews and their connection to Israel than any other, than anyone else. In the there's no, there's no other university whose mission includes an ability to affect the future of the American Jewish community. We also have all, all the usual uh, Jewish studies and Middle Eastern studies and all the rest of that, but a, a special mission, I think, to to apply to apply academia in a practical way to the future of the American Jewish community. So when you read like the Pew reports, do they coincide with what they find in the Cohen Center, or oh, sure. they, yeah, they do? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of overlap, and we mutually uh, correct each other. Uh, Len Sachs, who's the head of the uh, Cohen Center for Modern Jewish Studies, is involved in helping to plan uh, the Pew's work because they respect the uh, the science uh, of the work that we do at Brandeis. We currently have uh, more contracts for more of the American Jewish, you know, every American Jewish community wants to do its own study on its own future, understand where it's going. So we're currently doing, I don't know, five or six, we've may, maybe, you know, finished 15 or so over the last three or four years. We're constantly in the field and we're helping those communities to plot their own future and a better Jewish future for those communities. So let's talk about the American Jewish community and let's look at the future. What, what, what do you see? Uh, I have my own feelings, but you're much more knowledgeable about it than I am. So I really, I'm so interested to hear what you have to say. 
Well, you know, the Pew study uh, will be what it will be, and our studies will be what they will be. But I'll tell you, can I, can I do a, a brief Devar Torah? You could give as much. I love Devar Torahs, please. <laughs> Uh, I, I actually, this is B'Shem Omro. I, I don't know where I got this from exactly. I try to find it. I couldn't. Uh, so uh, Moshe is uh, at the uh, at the burning bush and God says, you're going to go free your people from Pharaoh. And Moshe says, uh, uh, you can't be talking to me because there's no way I can do this thing. And the Jews will never listen to me. And, uh, and they're going to ask me uh, your name. And just saying the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob ain't going to cut it when I'm asking them to risk their lives and defy Pharaoh. He says, so what is your name? And God says, I will be what I will be. So what does that mean? So whoever wrote this original Bavara Torah says, what God is saying to Moshe is, I will be what I will be, but you will determine the outcome. So I think the outcome is still very much in the air and still very much up to us. There are many things that we can do to shape the Jewish future. If we do nothing, then the Jewish future will be fairly empty, failing synagogues, failing institutions, uh, more and more assimilation, uh, more and more alienation from Israel. Or if we or if we think hard about what we need to do and make the right choices, 100% of the next generation and you know ain't going to be strongly committed to Israel and the Jewish people but you know it's going to be a choice between whether it's 25% or 50% or 75% we can affect those outcomes and we have affected those outcomes in in many ways we can determine what our future will be so uh, and, and we can talk about what some of those ways are in which we can in which we can help shape the future well i love to talk i love to talk about you know i was thinking about this uh, about a week ago when i at the Israel parade and looking around, and um, oh, did you see my grandchildren? They were right there with SAR. So, oh, you kidding. know what? I think I did. I pointed them out. I, I know my. I even mentioned. I even mentioned to my wife. I said, "You know, those are berries. I could tell just the way they look. They look exactly like them. It's yeah, amazing." Yeah. But uh, well, so when you when you look at when you look at the parade, and you look at the people who are marching, and you realize that except for the modern Orthodox yeshiva, basically, you know, the parade would be a I wouldn't be what it is because you've got SAR with them marching with a thousand people and Yeshiva University and Ramaz and and all the others you know all these schools thirty or forty schools marching with seven eight hundred and I'm looking for the reform I'm looking for the conservative and I'm saying where are they why aren't they there what's happened that they couldn't continue to have an education system Stalin Schechter's many of them have closed so. That's a question. And second, more importantly, what do we have to do to change it and reverse it? I mean, look at what it is. Whatever happened, happened. We know why. But what are we going to do in the future? I'm so committed to that. And I know so many people that I know would love to find a way of, of getting on the bandwagon and changing, the, changing our future. That will be the ones God will say, will we'll guide you, but you do the work. So what do we have to do? So let me distinguish between uh, two challenges that we face, and this is important. So I, th I would have to say that uh, a good part of my life, I have been engaged, uh, some would say, my wife would say, a lot of people would say, obsessed with questions of Jewish identity. 
started when I was working with teenagers at the Midwest Chester Y in New Rochelle in 1970. Uh, so that's that's more than 50 years, I think. And uh, it's been a deep, deep concern of mine. So, and of course, one of the answers is Jewish education. And a lot of the work that we did in Boston was in building day school education, building Jewish education, building adult Jewish learning. And I can talk about what the relationship is between those forces. Synagogues are not dead. A lot of their schools are pretty dead. But synagogues themselves and their ability to build community and to build a sense of peoplehood and common vision and all that, that's still there. The best synagogues are still functioning. So Jewish education is definitely a, a part of that. Uh, on the other hand, there's a separate thing that... So I happen to have gone to a Jewish day school, but my mo most important Jewish learnings were from my parents and my grandparents. I mean, they they instilled it in me a sense of connection to the Jewish people. I mean, I don't have to rehearse the whole story. The Jewish neighborhoods, the Jew, the the kosher butcher on the on the corner, which was probably the only reason my grandparents might have been kosher. It was a sense of community that built a sense of connection to the Jewish people. You didn't have to tell them that they should be excited in uh, 1947, 1948, when the state of Israel was being established, their lives were shaken at this thing. It didn't have to do with their Jewish education. My mother had no Jewish education. My father's was somewhat limited, but they were deeply engaged with the Jewish people. So on the one hand, it's interesting. For the next generation of Jews, it's not going to be why do we choose to have a Jewish education? We choose to have a Jewish education because we feel connected to the Jewish people. So I've come to believe that connection to the Jewish people and Jewish peoplehood comes first. It's not enough, but you can deepen it through Jewish education. If on the, I mean, bear in mind, more than 50%, maybe 60% of the next generation of non-Orthodox Jews are children of intermarriage. So that sense of peoplehood has to be established, reestablished, and deepened, or we're out of business. So in my mind, the great potential here, the big change happened 12, 13, 14, 15 years ago with the establishment of birthright. I mean, that's the, you can't teach love of the Jewish people. There's a wonderful book called John Lennon and the Jews by uh, uh, Zev Magen, uh, and it's an incredibly funny, uh, weird uh, book. But in it, he really talks about the importance of people that almost as a prerequisite to Jewish learning and Jewish tradition and, and all the rest of that. Birthright came out of there for me, having known since a paper I wrote back in the mid 70s, that a trip to Israel is a life-changing experience for people, but how do you get it to happen for a majority of Jews? And all of a sudden, these crazy philanthropists come up with this idea of a free trip to Israel, and all of a sudden, you've got 40,000, 50,000 American Jews a year going. There are only 80,000 Jewish births a year in the United States. So that's like half a generation. You know, if, if I think back on the experience of the 60s, on my generation, the music, the, the common experiences, the war, the civil rights movement, it shaped a generation. Birthright has the potential to shape a generation, particularly in the face of all the negative stuff about Israel. This is not an ideological fight for American Jews. First, you have to feel connected to your family. You can't understand the situation without being connected to your family with a sense of love. So in, in my view... Uh, that would be an that's an incredibly important part of this. How do we continue to strengthen the linkages to Israel? Because that is a, a key part of our sense of identification with the Jewish people. People say, can't you have peoplehood without a connection to Israel? And I say, what are you talking about here? It, it's that's half the Jewish people. If you're not concerned about their fate, what does Jewish peoplehood even mean? So there's that. And if we 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 created programs in Boston for follow up for birthright. 
which most communities unfortunately didn't do. We need a strategy for that so that the experience of people that is connected to Jewish education, trying to do that through better uh, relationship with Hillel's and so on. So that there's potential there. In other words, right now, uh, we, we, when we started out, when I first talked to Sheldon Adelson about the program, you know, 20,000 kids a year weren't going because there wasn't enough money. And Sheldon kicked in, God bless him, and, and went from only 50% of the kids going to 100% of the kids going. Now we're back down to 50% because Sheldon uh, passed away and, and the family, uh, uh, it, they're down to 10 million. That's not nothing. But now the rest of the American Jewish community has to make up the difference. Otherwise, we're, you know, we're, we're committing suicide. So, Barry, if that's the case, which, which I know it is because I've seen Birthright watched it up close, why are why is it so hard to get the funding? I mean, it seems so natural, right? Yeah. Well, in the first place, there's a lot of competition on the American Jewish scene. In the second place, and this is most important, I think people took it for granted that Sheldon and Miri were going to pick up the slack. If you look at the funding for Birthright, and this is amazing, uh, 30% of the funding comes from the Israeli government. The Israeli government recognizes this as being in their in their financial interest, their security. You got to see the the numbers to understand how important this is to Israel's economy. Uh, so they put in a third of the cost. Uh, the Adelsons were putting in one third of the cost, thirty or forty million dollars a year, and the rest of the American Jewish community, all the rest of us, including the federations, were putting in just a third. So basically, we got used to the fact that we could live off the largesse of of the Adelson family. And now we've got to go back to everybody and say, you've got a choice to make. This is in your hands. What does it mean if 20,000 kids a year who want to go to Israel and experience a sense of love for the Jewish people, attachment to their family, and bear in mind that half of those kids are going to be children of intermarriage for whom this is going to be the key experience of connection to the Jewish people. So one of the things that I'm doing in addition to working for uh, and for Brandeis and doing some work for other things that I, I'm on 10 different boards for all of my sins throughout my life. But for me, it's going to be an important part of my life to make sure that, that we go back to people and say, you got a choice to make. Yeah, I know. It's interesting. I mean, you talked about the follow-up. To me, that's always been the most important thing. And so what have you done in Boston follow-up for Birthright? Yeah, well, I mean, what we did was not an act of genius. It was an act of necessity, uh, and it was sort of uh, obvious. In other words, I do not think that it was Birthright's responsibility to do the follow-up. In other words, Birthright handed us 40,000 kids a year on a silver platter, kind of excited and ready to learn and ready to engage. If you look at the statistics, even now, probably half of the people going into Jewish communal service are birthright graduates. A, a huge part of people who are already becoming involved are birthright graduates, and that's without doing anything special to follow up. This is a gift to the American Jewish community. If you want to get angry at anybody, don't get angry at birthright. Talk to your local federation about why they're not following up with young adults to the extent that they should be. That's really the key. So what we did was something, you know, relatively simple. We I had sort of a brilliant staff person named Cheryl Aronson, who unfortunately passed away recently. But we sent her out. I raised some money and I said, let's let's partner with the Hillels and, and provide a full time staff person that will help that will pay for just to reach out to the birthright returnees when they come back because they weren't they weren't focused on them. Another, and for a lot of Hillel's that, that for many of them, really uh, traditional kids are a lot of what they pick up because they're a place to pray and a place for kosher food. 
In some cases, those kids scare away the less committed kids, but birthright kids are all mostly less committed to begin with. We can fill those places with less committed kids and we can bring them closer. And that was the role of what we call the IAC program. And the IAC coordinators were there to meet every single kid when they come back, frequently go on the buses with the kids when they go to Israel. Uh, and then when they bring them back, engage them. In in all the many programs that are growing up at Hillel's now, there's uh, Jewish Learning Fellows, There's there are Orthodox programs on many campuses with rabbinic couples uh, from the OU yeah, that are JLIC, part of that. Right. And for my part, they can get involved in anything they want. If they want to get involved in social justice, great. Let's help them. Let's remind them that that wonderful sense of community and Jewish pride that they felt on those buses that I think they're lonely for when they get back, that it can be recreated in a strong way within those Hillel's and in the special programs that bring them closer to Torah and Jewish learning and uh, and real Jewish action of various kinds. You think we could still connect with some of the kids who went 10 years ago or... Sure, sure. I think, yeah, one of the things that one of the great things about the studies that we do at Brandeis is that we have uh, the studies are are both controlled and longitudinal. That means we started with following a a group that hadn't gone on birthright that applied but couldn't go because there wasn't enough money. And we compare them. We compare them over 20 years to the kids who uh, did go from the same match backgrounds. And it still continues to have a, an impact on their lives 20 years later uh, in many of their choices. So if we target some of those kids, I, I think that the question of uh, day school education is partly a question of cost and it's partly a question of strength of commitment to want to have that experience for your kids. And I think that we need to we need to continue to look to young adults and the next generation of young adults and the last generation of young adults and continue to try to, you know, touch them and bring them in and remind them of what an experience, look, what is it that that we miss in modernity? We, we, we miss a sense of being part of something bigger than ourselves, lonely and alienated and, and all that. Judaism gives, is the, we own the patent on how you create community. You know, uh, we've done it over, you know, 2000 years without a country. We know a lot about spirituality. We know a lot about how you create a sense of meaning and purpose in, in, in your life. And that's what people are most missing. We have to use that springboard that you get from an Israel experience and use that to go much deeper. Wow, that is so articulate. It's exactly right. It's exactly how I feel. And uh, I've always, always felt that birthright was a, a phenomenal idea. And um, it and it works. You know, we, we don't have a lot of programs that work. So if we have one that works, let's 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 let's, let's keep it going and let's double see what down. we can do. Double down on the program yeah. with the follow up. You know, to follow up to me is really has been the, the key. You know, we uh, you have a lot of studies on it. I guess when it comes to well, you said fifty percent of the kids probably come from intermarried families to begin with, right? Yeah. So what happens to them when they when they get married? Do they marry a Jewish spouse or? The, the birthright experience greatly increases the odds that you're going to marry a Jewish spouse. It also greatly increases the odds that if you marry someone who's not Jewish, that you're going to commit yourself to raising those people as Jews. I mean, I'm on the board of a day school in Boston, Reform Movement Day School, and uh, I, maybe something like 30 percent of the of the children in that school are children of intermarriage. Now, you know, it, we, I used to think that that would be impossible. I mean, you know, it, this is 40,000 bucks a year per kid. 
that takes quite a commitment to make a decision to do that. And for those people who thought that the children of intermarriage were entirely lost, that's a mistake. And we have lots of studies to show that. If you offer people the opportunity for family and meaning and community and purpose and all that, a lot of people will will seek that out. And we found that in Boston with some of our schools. And, and it, it offers some hope. You know, I'm not... To say, you know, so birthright goes down. So instead of sending 40,000 kids a year, we send 20,000 kids a year. I say, are you kidding? You know, I, I've spent my life sweating blood to to bring every single Jew we can closer to the Jewish people. And me and thousands of other people working so hard for the Jewish community, we've got an opportunity to bring people closer. We can't, the future, gen, the future will not judge us kindly if we let this thing slip through our fingers. Right, right. Well, I hope you're successful because... Uh... It's uh, it's it's an important it's an important cause, and one that we've all followed. And even at the OU, when I was president, we had uh, birthright trips that we we were one of the uh, participants. Uh, you know where we but we had we had groups, and that's where we try to do some of the follow up, where we actually had people on the bus who would go with them and then talk about when you come back, would you like to learn with somebody or study with somebody? And, you know, it was a great thing because these kids were all going to go to college and the people they were going to meet were people who were professionals, people who uh, who had access also to maybe jobs for them, you know, but uh, it just, it didn't go. But so when you look at where we're going in American Jewish life, the future is in our, is in, is in our hands, really. That's what you're saying. If we can do it, look, Things are not great, but we can make them better than they are. Sure. And we have, like right now, you know, we strengthening the tie to Israel is absolutely critically important. And there were things that there are things that we can do about that. This is a moment of, of crisis for Israel, for Israelis, for American Jews. Um, we have to we have to think hard about what we can do to strengthen those relationships. So you talk about social causes. I know that you've been involved in many, many social causes. Uh, what, are, what are the ones that are near and dear to you? I'm, I'm deeply involved in several institutions that uh, are in the United States and in Israel uh, for people with disabilities. That's, uh, for me, that's, people want to talk about tikkun olam and how we complete God's world. For me, that's always touched my heart very, 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 very deeply. I think we need to be uh, involved in that. I think that, you know, the idea that that you either care about Torah and Jewish identity or you care about uh, justice in the world for Jews and for non-Jews as well, that that's a choice. And if you do one, you don't do the other. I think that's, I think that's a false choice. It's something that, you know, my, the rabbis that I care most about would certainly disagree with from, you know, Rabbi Soloveitchik to Rabbi Sachs to Rabbi Greenberg, Rabbi Lichtenstein. Uh, we in the Orthodox community need to represent a set of uh, Torah commitments and Torah values that are that are out there in the world that are committed to making the world a better place. For me, that's that's a cause that that I'm involved in to make sure um, that we're associated within the Orthodox community with places that can do those do those kind of things and and um, all that in Israel. I, I have to say, I mean. A year ago, a year and a half ago, I thought that there were there was an amazing opportunity developing for Israel, an important opportunity, and part of it was the Abraham Accords. I mean, all our lives, right? I was born in 1947. Israel was born in 1948. And all that time, when you thought about Israel's biggest problem, it's that there's war between Arabs and Jews. Arabs and Jews were at war with each other. All of a sudden, we have problems. There are Palestinian problems. There are issues that are out there, but we... 
but we have we we're not at war. <laughs> you know, there there are countries that are that want to be closer to Israel. We can make the most of those uh, opportunities. Uh, and within Israel, you had a coalition government that actually had uh, the Ram Party as part of it. And I, I actually had a lot of respect for um, uh, Mansour Abbas, who was the head of the party, who actually openly stated that he thought that there, that he wanted there to be a Jewish state, that he wanted to be part of the Jewish state, and his party got the uh, plurality of uh, of Arab votes in the last in the last election. That was an opportunity inside it. We don't have to be enemies with each other. God forbid we should be enemies. That's a security risk for Israel. Twenty percent of its own citizens are 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 alienated. It's a real problem. So uh, I think that the American Jewish community, in addition to its other tzedakah in Israel, can actually lean in on the side of shared society and uh, equality of opportunity. You know, uh, the changes in Israel, the opportunities are remarkable. About a year and a half ago, I was looking at the statistic, and even though I should know about this, like I was shocked to see that 25% of Israeli doctors are Israeli Arabs, 25%. They're, they're only like 20% of the Israeli population. They're overrepresented in a field that's usually thought of as, the, uh, as a bastion of the middle class. Obviously, they want to be part of Israeli society, and, and we need to encourage that trend to the extent that we can. So uh, I'm, I'm committed to that. I'm, in, I'm on the board of the University of Haifa, which has uh, many uh, programs of outreach to uh, uh, 45% of their student body are Israeli Arabs. That's an opportunity. JDC does great work in that area as well. And, um, you know, but in addition to everything else that we have to do in Israel, it's another piece of what our commitment needs to be. Yeah, no, I, I saw that uh, connection, the Boston Haifa connection, uh, which is very interesting. Yeah. We had, you know, uh, at B'nai Zion, uh, where the organization I'm the president of, uh, we have a hospital in Haifa, the B'nai Zion Hospital. Right. It's been there for, right. for many, many years. It's a wonderful community hospital, 550 beds. We actually just, I just returned from Israel uh, recently where we uh, we built a uh, very, very beautiful underground facility that we needed because of its proximity to the Lebanese border. So we know the, sure. we know the city of Haifa very well in B'nai Zion. And uh, what you're doing is great. That really is a, a very interesting city. Uh, people, I think when people go there for the first time, they can't believe. The first time I went there, I was so shocked to see Hasidim walking in the street. I said, what? There are no Hasidim who live in Haifa? And then I realized everybody lives in Haifa. It's, a, it's wonderful. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. I know you've done a lot of work with adult education also. Uh, all, you know, yeah. Listen, you, you're involved in all the things that are really important to the Jewish people. And it's so important for us to have someone like you with your, not just your sense of optimism, but the pract- practical nature of what you know how to do and how to put it together. So, you know, I, when I look at the American Jewish community, uh, you know, I, I'm optimistic, but truthfully, I'm a lot more optimistic today after, after meeting you than I was before, <laughs> than I was before. I mean, it. I really, I really feel that way because it's really incredible, you know, the kind of things that you've done and what you've said about Taglit. So you've been to Israel, I know, I read 120 times. Now it must be more than that. So I always, yeah. I always wonder, my wife and I always laugh. We say, we've, I don't know how many times we've been to Israel, maybe 100, whatever, but Every single time we go to Israel and we meet with Israeli leaders, they always say the same thing. This is a very crucial time for you to be here. And my wife and I are going like, can't there be one time where we come where they say, look, we're, we're happy to have you. Nothing much is going on. It's never happened. So what are your thoughts about that? Well, I think, uh, you know, first, let me just say this about Boston Haifa. 
this was a program that was originally started by the Jewish Agency, uh, Partnership 2000. We actually started our project before they started theirs. And we put a lot more money in than was required by the normal Jewish Agency thing. We, we really doubled down. We were sending 700 teenagers a year to live in Israeli homes in Haifa. And they were sending 700 kids to Boston. Uh, I mean, the potential for this, if look, to have a debate about uh, narratives between Jews and Palestinians, and it's going to be lost on most American Jews, and, and, and they have a quite, a, quite a good uh, narrative in any case. We need to meet our people. So really, if every Jewish community did what we did in Haifa, uh, I think that the state of the relationship between American Jews and Israel's, Israel would be much better. It's another one of those things that we could double down on and make a real make a real difference. In, in terms of, look, when I went this last time, CJP uh, took a, my former federation, uh, took a very large, the new director, uh, Mark Baker, is just fabulous. I'm very lucky to have been succeeded by a, a person like that. And he took a, a very large uh, delegation to, uh, to, to Israel. And I said to them, they asked me to be kind of a scholar in residence. And I said, you know, uh, we are we are here. I love to be at the leading edge of Jewish history. And the truth is, whenever you go to Israel, you're at the leading edge of Jewish history. Something is always happening there that will shape the Jewish future in powerful ways. So, yeah, I, I think that's right. Every time we go there, it sort of is something amazing is happening. I, right. So, you know, I know you've uh, listened to some of the podcasts, so you know I always end the podcast with this thing I call the lightning round. So who's the greatest person you've ever met? I have to say, every time I meet uh, Natan Sharansky, I feel like I'm in the presence of a history-shaping figure. He's very modest, actually. He loves to say uh, that the reason he was unique in the Israeli cabinet is that he was the only cabinet member that went to jail before yeah. he was a cabinet. <laughs> I've heard member. him. I've heard him say that. I've heard. I've heard him say that. I've heard him say but, that. But I mean, he did look. He, the guy is. The guy symbolizes. Jewish pride, uh, dignity in, in the face of the enemy, his speech to the Russian court, his everyone could learn, every Jew could learn so much by looking at this guy and his life and his journey and all the rest of that. So Sharansky would be right there, my spiritual mentors. I've been very lucky to have known Yitz Greenberg and to have him in my life and uh, Avi Weiss, my current rabbi, Rabbi Samuels. All of these, all of these people were they shape my philosophy and my sense of commitment to the Jewish people. You know that the, this past summer at B'nai Zion, we actually brought over a uh, a Muslim basketball player, Ines Cantor. I don't know if you heard of him. And we brought him to Israel, and uh, it was very interesting. We were in a camp, both for kids, uh, Jewish kids, Muslims, Christians, and so on. But one of the days, we actually had him meet Natan Sharansky. And so here was this seven-foot-one <laughs> you know, basketball player next to not, not to, next to Natan Sharansky, and we had took a picture of them, and we told them we said in Israel you're measured by Sharanskys. That's how you're measured. But I mean, you're right. I understand what you're saying about it. What about the best speaker you ever heard? Jonathan Sachs. Jonathan Sachs. Okay, good. Many people say that. That's absolutely. That's a that's a good one. By the way, I, I would say I would say we so miss having him around. What a tragic loss for the Jewish community. Unbelievable. Public, a public intellectual who could influence oh, yeah. so much. Right. And right. Also, uh, you know, uh, in his own way, just uh, open to the public. Uh, he, we had, I had a great opportunity. He came to, I live in Woodmere. He came to our community once and I was involved, in, you know, spending Shabbos with him a little bit and just walking on the street with him and people stopping and yeah. asking questions. And, you know, uh, he was such a charming man. Unbelievable. 
But when he was doing his Jewish identity work in, in London, he invited me over to dialogue with the people who were working there and talk about what we were doing in Boston. And I had a chance to spend some some time with him. And then he came to visit us in, in Boston at CJP. And the guy was just a, a, gi- a giant. I mean, his knowledge of Torah, his ability to integrate sociology and psychology and, and the needs of the American Jewish community and social justice and just, just a giant. Yeah. Now... Don't give me the answer that that's going to be your wife. But here's the question: If you were in a fo- if you were in a foxhole, who would you want in the foxhole? You know what? You know, aside from my family, my kids. Uh, although I wouldn't want them in any foxhole, I guess actually. But you know, I felt like I was uh, not in a fo- look. People say it was so tough to work for the Jewish community. It's so bureaucratic, and there's so many conflicts and. I can't, I got to say I had a I had a picnic. I mean, uh it, it was beautiful. I was in the foxhole with my board and with my staff, my staff leadership and they were right next to me taking the shots and shooting back and creating strategies and um my team. I was part of their team. The volunteer leaders, the chairs of the board of CJP, we stuck by each other and created great ideas and great programs. That would be my answer. Okay, that's a good answer. I like that answer. What about the greatest leader you've ever met? Well, I had the privilege of uh, being in Israel during the Scud missile uh, thing in the first Gulf War um, and drove around a bit um, with Rabin. And, of course, that was like just, um, I mean, which was amazing. I also had the opportunity to be with Arik Sharon when he was already prime minister. And we, it was like an amazing visit. I was with Robert Kraft, who owns the Patriots, and he brought over our first uh, uh, Super Bowl trophy. And I think uh, we got the word that I don't think it was maybe true exactly, but Sharon wanted to see it. So we brought it to his office and uh, chatted with him about the future that he saw for Israel. He, he was a, He was able to make change and just grow and be bigger than he was and create new opportunities and options because of his stature. And he was a a truly great man. Yeah, absolutely. What about who's your favorite writer? Oh, that's good. Uh, That's a, that's a, that's a a good question. Uh, I guess I'd have to say Rabbi Sachs, Uh, you know, he's, uh, and, and Rabbi Soloveitchik, although a lot of the stuff wasn't, some of it, some of it is reported that, of stuff that he said and books that were written about him and all that, but Soloveitchik certainly had a, a large impact on my philosophy in my life. I, I never really spent any, I never met, I never really met him. I mean, I heard him speak years before I came to Boston. By the time I came to Boston, he wasn't well, um, but certainly had a big impact on our community. What about your, what's your favorite uh, biblical character? Hmm. I'd have to give that more thought, but you know, offhand, you'd have to say Abraham or Moshe. Uh, maybe not the most interesting answers of all times. More typical, but certainly. No, I look. Those are a, lot, a lot of people give that answer. What about your favorite Chag? I like Sukkot, actually. Really? No kidding. That's funny. Yeah. Most people say Pesach, but that's okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, actually, actually, Pesach is my Hebrew name, so maybe I. Oh, I there should, you go. Okay. Like... What about? Um, Favorite vacation spot? That would have to be, um, well, definitely uh, Israel. I mean, you know, if I had a choice between any place to go, I'd go to Israel. I mean, I love Paris. I love France. And we go to Nantucket for whenever we get a chance. But but, uh, to be able to be in Israel is uh, a real privilege. 
Okay, one final question. I, I presume you've been many, many places in the world. Is there any place you'd like to go that you haven't been yet? I must not have much imagination. I, I just keep going back to the places that I want to be. I hear and, you. Uh, I hear you. Well, listen, thank you so much. I think you've really enlightened us as far as, you know, the American Jewish community, Taglit, the relationship between the Boston community and Haifa, and uh, you've given us a lot of food for thought. And uh, I hope people who are listening are going to say, you know, what could I do? As you said, we could we could form and make our own destiny if we know what we're doing. And, you know, I, I don't think, look, we don't we, we, we be Pollyannic. We, we could look at the world and say, we can't change everything. But if we could change some things, if we could make it better by 10% or 20 or 30%, you know, that's what sometimes I talk to people who are involved in outreach. And, you know, sometimes it's frustrating because, you know, they look at the numbers and on the macro level, the numbers don't look great. But on the micro level, Change your family, change 10, change 20. Who knows where it leads to? Anyway, thank you, Barry, for being on the program. Thank I you. really appreciate it and a great honor. I appreciate and, uh, being here. Continue good health, you know, and keep, go, keep doing what you're doing. Don't stop. And, you know, when I do interview you at nine o'clock in the morning, tell me it's almost half day. Be good. Feel good. Yeah. Take care. Bye bye. Thanks. You take care now. Be well. Bye bye. Thanks for tuning in to Unrestricted, hosted by Steve Savisky. The show was produced and edited by Gilad Brownstein and is a production of B'nai Zion.